Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators Podcast. I'm Brian O'Connor, Lead Content Editor for No-Till Farmer. Verdesian sponsors this program, which features stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming. In this week's No-Till Influencers and Innovators Podcast, we take another look back at the early days of no-till in Western Kentucky. However, this episode is different than most of the podcasts in this series because it features a former John Deere dealer and his memories of the rapid growth of no-till in the Western Kentucky area. John Shipp operated Ship Implement Company at Russellville, Kentucky in the 1970s and 1980s and was deeply involved with no-till, much to the chagrin of John Deere, who was not happy with the movement to no-till among the area's growers. Deere instead preferred to sell large horsepower tractors, moldboard plows, and discs. Now retired from the farm equipment business and living in Clarksville, Tennessee, Ship shares a few of his no-till memories and his battles with the rigid rules John Deere had for dealers. Join us as Frank Lesseter and John Ship talk about Kentucky, no-till, and John Deere. So how are you doing today? Oh, it's a, it's a beautiful day here. Almost 100. Oh, God, a little threat, warm. Threat, threatened rain, but didn't. There's some moisture to the north and the east of us. It hadn't been too bad, but it's pretty. it's been pretty rough here for farmers, especially depending on corn. The no-till beans will stand the drought better than corn sure. will. The corn's got to have water at a certain point, and most of the corn in, in this area, and it's not a tremendously big thing in this immediate area, but you get up in Kentucky, western Kentucky, where, well, you've talked about Wayne Hunt in in his area. It's pretty important to have corn and, and that, that three crops in two years sure. rotation that they do. Yeah. How you doing? Pretty good. Let's talk about uh, no-till in the early days. When did you first hear about no-till, or when did you get involved with it? Well, I went into John Deere business. I lived in Elizabethtown, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. and went to high school there and, and uh, thought I eventually I would get the John Deere store in Elizabethtown, Kentucky. My father at one time owned half of it, and the Chevrolet dealer owned the other half of it. And uh, But the way things turned out, it went on another direction. And uh, my friend, you've heard of James R. Cash Auction Company? Sure. His brother, Norman Cash, was my territory manager, John Deere territory manager, and he was he lived in Elizabethtown at that time. So I got to know him pretty well, and and uh, they had a, a store in Hopkinsville, a store in Bowling Green. Couldn't get anybody to go to Russellville, mm-hmm. and he thought he talked me into going to Russellville, and uh, we went there in the very early seventies, I believe seventy two or seventy three. Prior to that, I had been watching the no till and all all the tractors and things like that because that's about all I've ever done, mm-hmm. and and. Uh, Somewhere in the, the later 70s, I can't remember, I should have looked this up, but you probably know when uh, no-tails started coming along. And uh, it just happened, I read that article the other day that you had somewhere and uh, about the no-tail culture. Mm-hmm. And I responded that we had to do something unusual to make it work on those John Deere 7,000 planters. Right. And that's what precipitated this call. Now, Wayne Hunt is a Christian County person, a farmer near Herndon, and all of my mother's people are from there. As a matter of fact, my grandfather, Crenshaw, and Harry Young, 
their farms joined each other. And Alice Chalmers did a, a lot of experimental work on the no-till waffle coulter right. on Harry Young's farm. Yeah, I've been there and, a number uh, of times. Yeah, so that, that'll bring us up to date. And, uh, of course, John Deere brought out the 7,000 planter, the Maximerge planter, they call it, and it was had a lot of superior designs on it, the metering and the Maximerge units and everything like that, but we couldn't talk them into making it no-till. And we were selling those planters pretty good, and no-till wasn't the only way to go in our part of the country back then. They they liked the for the people that worked the ground up, planted the corn. They liked the 7,000 planter like it was. But the double-crop people had gotten to the place that they demanded a no-till colder coulter to plant the beans after the wheat. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, they were taking a moldboard plow out there and plowing that wheat stubble up in the middle of July and trying to get a crop of beans. And you can imagine a year like this, getting those beans to germinate. So no-till was the answer to it. And we were selling those planters along to really good customers and, and really good farmers and everything like that. And they said, we need to make those things no-till. And John Deere just wouldn't listen to us at all. And I would come in in the morning. We were still selling moldboard plows back then. I'd come in in the morning and I'd walk past that line of moldboard plows and I'd get that that uh, uh, 7,000 planter that was at the end of the row or something like that. And I got to thinking, I said, you know, we can take those plow coulters off of the big plows and adapt them to the fertilizer bar in the front of the 7,000 planter. And that's what we ended up doing. We would take that, reinforce that fertilizer bar, of course, take, take the fertilizer openers off if it had it, we would reinforce that with pretty heavy angle iron and end up with the same shape as the coulter bracket where it fits on the big plow. So it bolted on there with factory bolts. And uh, we, of course, would use a cushion coulter. You could get one with a shear bolt or you could get one with a spring spring cushion. And some some people wanted to try the plow coulter by itself. Some people wanted a regular waffle blade put on it. But we were able to accommodate that and make all that work. And uh, for the the summertime planting, we put front weight brackets off of John Deere tractors, adapted those to the, this bar, one on each side, so you can hang weights on it to get it to go in the ground. And and to my knowledge, nobody ever tore up their planter. Uh, John Deere just John Deere just died. He said that planter's not designed to do that. And you know you know it. And I said, they're going to buy something else if they won't, if we don't get this done, which, and, and pretty soon word got out. People would come from other, other parts of the world and want to buy a kit, want to buy a kit. Sometimes we'd put together what we thought they needed. And of course, we didn't usually hear back from them. Some of them might have, but reinforcing that, that, uh, uh, fertilizer opener bar. And of course, it had straps that connected it to the mainframe. We would add some of those in there. We just we just didn't have any trouble, and, and and it sold a lot of planters. So before you did this, Alice Chalmers, did they kind of dominate the planter market in that area or not? It it was a mixed bag. Okay. I really hadn't thought about it from that standpoint. Of course, we had an Oliver dealer then. We had an International Harvester dealer then. Uh, of course, eventually the John Deere dealer was me, and uh, Alice Chalmers and. And uh, they were all fairly successful and uh, far more successful than any of them are today. <laughs> you yeah. know how that's gone. Exactly. And uh, 
but now they had a pretty decent planter and that been able to no-till with it uh, when not very many other outfits could do it. It was their ace in the hole. Uh-huh. And and most people in that area that were farming uh, on any scale at all would double crop the soybeans behind the wheat. Sure. And uh, it still was not in the class with a maximerge planter for planting corn. Uh-huh. Of course, that's okay. what John Deere kept telling us. And, and uh, we said, yeah, that's right, but we want to do other things with it. So why was John Deere so slow? They just didn't want to get into the no-till market? They wanted to keep selling big tillage tools? I think it's a combination of things. At the top of the list, they just don't like people to tell them what to do. (laughs) That's still true today. (laughs) Yes, yes, that's bred in in their heritage. Moving on up a few years, we, we had trouble with them because they wanted to get into the insurance business. Mm-hmm. And, and they did, and I can I can't fault them for wanting to diversify like that. But they would if we, if you financed a, a John Deere piece of equipment, they would add the cost of the the insurance, their insurance, and tell you they were giving it to them, and uh, then they would they wouldn't pay the claims. <laughs> 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 but uh, I guess they've been far more successful than I have. I, I shouldn't be trying to throw rocks at them, but. But anyhow, out of timers was was not a a fantastic planter. It was made up of two bars, sure, and tied together, and it was it was durable. And uh, of course, they had. I don't think they patented that waffle holder. They may have, but most anybody could seem like they could use it. If well, we'd kind of give a, our customer a choice if you wanted it. that uh, semi waffle holder that John Deere came out with, where the outer a couple of inches was just like a plow holder straight. And then it have and it had small waffles in a little closer. Mm-hmm. That was my favorite one. If you couldn't cut through stuff with it, you weren't going to do it, do it at all because that. And that was a John Deere. I don't know whether they patented or not, but that was that was where we got that blade from John Deere. And then we'd have to go to the Dallas Chalmers dealer to get the waffle blade at first. And some people just went, once they got that on there, they just go on with the with the regular plow coulter. The max it was it was a little harder on the maximum units and, uh, to do that than to have a, a little bit more tillage in there like the waffle bolter would make. So what did uh, Deer say to you when you were modifying these planters? Stop doing it or threaten you or what? You know I don't remember. They didn't find out about it for a while. I think they 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 any big company like that is is from the top down management. Uh, I'm, I'm sure yours is not that way, <laughs> but but they have goals and they have sure. markets and, and and ratios and everything that and they start into whatever year they're in and they set aside this much money for warranty and, and uh, they watch that really close and they just we never we never tried to warranty anything like that we never had any trouble with it and mm-hmm. every once in a while somebody would hit a rock. You get in Kentucky, most anywhere you can find a rock in Kentucky, sure. <laughs> and 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 the cushion coulter that we were using was already, you know, designed to jump over that rock with the cushion part on it. So that that added added a lot to the durability of it. But we never we never sent a warranty claim in for something that that we knew was not right. And I don't know what other dealers did in that, and I, and I don't know other dealers that were doing that. Of course, eventually they redesigned that maximum unit and put the coulter on the front of it, which was really where it needs to be. 
made ours look like it was a Sunday school thing. They just weren't ready to do that. I don't know where the management backed up on it, but I don't know. We went four or five years selling planters, maybe longer than that. They used to have the 1240 and the 1260, and we never tried to do that. That was pretty light duty. But now the Maximerge planter, the 7000, really brought us to the front to where we we were in the game but we needed we needed to substitute when in the game when we put the no-till cultures on there well you know you go farther north you get into central illinois or central iowa central indiana those seven thousand planters were pretty popular with no-tillers when they were doing full season beans and full season corn yes yes and uh we're st- ours were two but but the double cropping the beans behind the the wheat is really what made us do that because yeah. that, that uh, the regular planter wouldn't do a good job. It just well, didn't. It just it just didn't have the uh, the place to slice to do it. Yeah. Um, granted, the Maxim Merch unit was better than anything else out there then at that time. Well, I can remember back in the seventies and eighties, we'd get these pictures all the time from farmers who were trying to get more weight on their planters so they could get them in the ground. You would see people with concrete blocks. You'd see people with bags of fertilizer on them. You'd see people with wa- water containers, uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. down pressure. Yep. We didn't we didn't know what down pressure was then, but that's what they were looking for, more weight to get it in the ground. Well, the other, the other thing that some of our customers used, uh, this fertilizer bar, if you've got fertilizer for a Maximerge, mm-hmm. which you've got the fertilizer openers, and you could get a dry fertilizer hopper, or you could get a liquid fertilizer hopper. Sure. And you could you could put you could put like a seven thousand six year old. You could put a couple of tanks on there. I'd say they were one hundred and fifty gallon tanks or something like that, and get all the down pressure you needed. But uh, a, a lot of them they wanted that they wanted that tied to the tool bar, and that's what we did. We reinforced it, and and uh, we would take a front tractor weight bracket. Most everybody had front weights on their tractor, right. and, and we'd right. have to go buy some more of them and hang those weights on there when they needed it, take it off when they didn't need it. And I don't remember putting the tanks on any, but we may have. Some people may have already had a liquid fertilizer outfit and, and came with that. we just take the, the openers off and modify the bar and put the coulters on there. Well, the trouble with the fertilizer tanks, it's okay when you start out, but it's when they get empty, you've lost your down pressure. So true. So true. That's right. You have to have a water truck in the field at the end of the field for it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. How old are you? Uh, I'm 82. Uh, 82. Well, your son said that you beat me a little bit. I'll be 81 in September. Yeah. Well, and, I'll be uh, 83 in October. So. Yeah. You're going you to stay ahead of me, aren't you? Right. I think I, <laughs> I sometimes tell people I'm as old as dirt. Yeah. Yeah. You ended up running uh, three John Deere dealerships. No, sir. I had one. Okay. And they were very successful. Okay. John Deere, John Deere always bro- broke up their area in by branches. We were in sure. the Columbus branch. We were as far away from the Columbus branch. We were their second largest volume dealer in the Columbus branch. Mm-hmm. We never could pass the guys at Fishers, Indiana. They always had one or two really strong stores. That was the other thing. John Deere couldn't figure out how we were selling that much stuff in Kentucky. Yeah. <laughs> and hadn't been for Norman Cash, I'd never, I had never, it never would have worked six months. Mm-hmm. But he, he and I were friends and he trusted me and 
we talked about James R. You knew James R. had died. Yes. The, the, the brother that was auctioneer and his son, J.R., uh, is continuing on with that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but Norman, of course, is retired. And I, I talked to him every once in a while. I believe he's ended up in Lexington. I think okay. some of his wife's people were there or something like that. But I, I don't think John Deere and I could have got along at all if it hadn't been for him. Did it end up around Russellville? Most of the farmers go to no-till and double cropping three crops in two years or not? Yes, yes. Uh, if you look at if you look at a map uh, and look where I-65 goes north and south, mm-hmm. uh, there's a strip of land that runs across southern Kentucky that's uh, about 15 or 20 miles wide north to south, and it's about 10 or, 10 or 12 miles north to south in, in Tennessee. And if you were in the east, it would start roughly at I-65. If you get much further east than that, you get into some a lot of red clay and a lot of rocks. But this, this strip of land is a little miniature corn belt, and I didn't teach them how to farm. They knew how to farm <laughs> for generations. Yeah. And... Uh, the uh, there's there's a that was a and it still is a miniature corn belt. The only thing it lacked of being perfect, it was hard to find a place to irrigate. Okay. Uh, there's, there wasn't a strong stream stream of water running close to it, and and you had to go really deep to get to get a well that would you know uh, that would support support irrigation. Not all the irrigation was done back then, and I'm sure it still is too with tobacco and it's. Not hardly any tobacco grown anymore. So you live in Clarksville, t- Tennessee today? Yes, yes. Uh, Hank Borman, who was originally a John Deere guy, uh, he was he got to be a territory manager for Kubota. And uh, I worked with him someplace. I started to say at AgriPower, but I don't think, yeah, we had Kubota at AgriPower. That's probably where I met him, mm-hmm. Wayne Hunt store. And I helped, I helped him get that started. And Wayne don't need any help. He just, we were close enough friends. He asked me to help him when he, he bought the case company store that when they went out of business there and started in the farm equipment business. But, but anyhow, I was in Wakefield, Virginia, trying to help a guy that had a dealership in Wakefield and one, uh, one dealership over on the Eastern shore. You talk about an interesting part of the country. You had to, you had to go under the Atlantic Ocean to get from Virginia Beach, right? To uh, you, you know where I'm talking about? Yeah, the Delmarva and, Peninsula. That's right. That's right. And uh, the interesting thing about Wakefield, you could sell peanut combines, cotton pickers, and combines all in the same place. Mm-hmm. They grew it all right there. That was the first place in North America that they grew peanuts. Sure. I believe okay. was was, yeah. was the. But anyhow, uh, Hank Bowen called me and he said, what are you doing? I told him, I said, he said, can you come back to Kentucky and help me put Russellville on the map? And I thought about it about 25 seconds and I said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, so we, we started a dealership from scratch in Russellville and uh, about 20, 22 years ago, something like that, it wasn't as strong and as big as the John Deere dealerships I've been involved with, but I, I, I put it back on the map for them. And uh, about five years ago, uh, I, I saw that Kubota was going the direction John Deere. They wanted multiple locations. When I went in business as a Kubota dealer, they did not want multiple locations. 
Sure. Uh, and and uh, they had one in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, I believe, had two or three stores, and they just couldn't keep up with them. They weren't prepared. But but the, the more I dealt with them, the more they learned from John Deere how to do things. <laughs> and then they hired they hired people from John Deere. You know, they they Kubota people not dumb. You know, but they they did that. And I I I, I had a chance to sell it to an individual that order, had already bought the Kubota place at Paris, Tennessee, and uh, get out of it and step back. And uh, they owned one in uh, Nashville, in Paris, in Clarksville, and White House, Tennessee, which is north of. And the last time I talked to them, they were shopping for more stores. Sure. But uh, but uh, that family has some medical patents that has a good cash flow to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they figured out a there and there some of their friends figured out how to put a cast inside of a bone rather than mm. rather yeah they put a, they put a tube in there and uh, then they put a trigger on it and once it's in there and the, the bone is set. They they pull, pull that trigger and it becomes rigid. Yeah, and it's it's amazing, but they they they've got a good cash flow out of that, and they're very successful. I I think the store here in Clarksville is the largest Kubota dealership in in Tennessee. I think mm-hmm. the, the single store, and then I know that. Well, a couple things happened with Deer after they finally decided they would support an hotel and. They did it, and then they came out with the John Deere 750 drill, which had a big impact. Mm-hmm. And, then at, mm-hmm. and then at the same time, rotary combines came out, and all of a sudden we were able to spread the straw residue the full width of the combine, which no-till definitely needed instead of having it in a pile or in a swath. Yeah. So were you involved with the 750 drills? Some. Uh, most, of the, most of the drilling was done after you took the corn off and most everybody wanted to do some tillage mm-hmm. and nothing run a disc over it to chop up those uh, stalks up. Sure. And we really didn't sell a lot of no-till drills. A lot of people, it wasn't something they needed to change immediately like the, like the, the putting the beans after the wheat. Sure. And, uh, but uh, that, we sold some and I don't remember how many or you know what percentage or don't remember having any trouble or modifying them any. I think they were, they were kind of set to do what they were doing. You think rotary combines made a di- big difference, all being able to spread the residue the full width? Sure, sure, yeah. I had another un- uh, uh, interesting stint uh, when Caterpillar developed a Challenger tractor. Sure. The rubber track tractor. Mm-hmm. Wayne Supply Company, who uh, is the only dealer in Kentucky, they, they've had, they, were, they were one of the initial Caterpillar dealers uh, when when Caterpillar was developed in 1913 or 23 or whenever it was, mm-hmm. and uh, I had I, I knew people there, and they hired me to put them in the farm equipment business, and I, I did that for about 10 or 15 years, and uh, uh, of course Wayne Supply, the Wayne family finally ran out. When I was working there, I knew Roy C. Wayne. Senior, and I knew the son. I knew the son wasn't going to carry it on, but he had a, a sister, Carrie, mm-hmm. and she carried it on for a long time. But now, they they sold out to the guy that was the sales manager or his his group about five years ago, something like that. And it carries his name. I can't remember what it is, mm-hmm. but that was interesting. Uh, putting people in the caterpillar tractor business and things like that, and then a lot of those same customers that I had with John Deere and. 
things like that. Uh, I went right back to them with them. And they just gave me a, f- a free reign and uh, haul them around and demonstrate them and things like that. And it was it was kind of radical at that time. But uh, uh, but the 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 combine is what put me onto this. The combine that they were selling at that sure. time, or we were selling at that time, was superior to anything else out there. Mm-hmm. I remember going to the Farm Machinery Show that year, or the Farm Progress Show that year, where they line up the combines and, and yeah. run them, run them so, yeah. so far. Uh, the uh, They had the guy there that was kind of fra- flagging them off, and he'd let the, the, the red combine or the green combine or whatever get through before he'd let the other combine come through. And I remember he stood there like that, and the 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 John Deere combine was almost halfway through, and the guy with the cat combine he couldn't wait, <laughs> and he he took off and passed him, <laughs> <laughs> and I'd never seen that happen at that that particular show before. I guess he got scolded pretty much. Of course, you know all those farmers ran out there and just knew there was going to be a big pile of uh, corn out there. Yeah. And some of them couldn't find any. That that that, that was a superior combine, and I don't remember exactly the co- configuration of the rotors, but it was it was not a cylinder combine. The cylinder combine was fast going by the wayside. Right. Hand. Well, the thing I thing I remember about the the Cat Challenger tractors was, that, and uh, we're on our thirty first year of holding the National No Tillage Conference. We'll get thousand farmer no tillers in for a meeting once a year, but these these no tillers were buying these cat challenger tractors like crazy, and uh, I I couldn't figure out for a long time why why they were doing it. But I finally figured out these progressive no tillers are innovators. They're more than willing to try some new idea, and they made the track challengers work for them. There were a lot of cat challengers got sold to no tillers that let them pull bigger, wider equipment and sprayers. But uh, the main got thing the is compaction that, some too. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, mm-hmm. but they, the reason they tried it, they were just innovators, and they were willing to try something, and they'd made enough money off no-till that they could invest mm-hmm. in something like that. Yes, yes. The tractors weren't perfect. Mm-hmm. I was, I, I, I'm a, a purist, I guess I might say. I'd get disappointed <laughs> every time something happened, thinking that Caterpillar should be perfect, but they're like any other company. And they farmed out a lot of that tractor. Sure. Uh, it, the the main part of it was made in that I can't think of where that plant is uh, that was building uh, the big versatile tractors. Manitoba, oh. Canada. Oh yeah, yeah, Winnipeg, Winnipeg, yeah. Winnipeg, Winnipeg. Uh, but it had a cat engine in it, which that everybody smiled. You know, they had the caterpillar then. It would pretty well sell itself. I I could call up whatever store. I, Wayne had several stores scattered over the country and over Kentucky and. I'd say I need a you know, whatever number it was sent to this guy's farm. They'd load it up and bring it, and I'd meet it there the next morning and, and demonstrate it. Mm-hmm. And about half, or maybe close to half, of the demonstrations I made, we sold sold the thing. We sold the fire out of them. Of course, we we uh, we watched the used equipment. By then, I had learned that that was the downfall of most tractor places was the used equipment. <laughs> Your son made a comment. On our email that we exchanged back and forth, that Wayne Hunt had said that I had an un- unusual way or something of dealing with used equipment. And I was going to ask him that if he was on the phone today, but I don't know. I don't know what Wayne was talking about. But did he tell you my relation with Wayne Hunt? 
Yeah, he did, and it sounded like it was a very favorable one with the two of you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Wayne's uncle raised him. Mm-hmm. His father, I don't know what happened to his father, but uh, his uncle and one of my uncles in Christian County, Kentucky, lived across the field from each other. Sure. So I knew I knew Wayne for a long time, and like I said, he he developed a very successful feed, seed, and fertilizer and chemicals operation with Agra Kim in, mm. in Oh yeah, Africa. I remember them. Yeah. And uh, but he decided to get into the farm equipment business, and and he called me called me one night and. He said, if I buy that Case Company store there that was just south of Hopkinsville where Case Power and Equipment used to be mm-hmm. uh, when when, that, when International went out of business, so to speak, and he said, well, you come up here and run it for me. And I talked to him about five or ten minutes, and I finally said yes. And So I have to take a little bit of credit uh, putting Wayne <laughs> in the farm equipment business, even though I taught him a lot of things he, sh- he shouldn't do. He, he already <laughs> knew how to do things. <laughs> well, he's and a pretty – go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, I can't keep up with how many stores he's got. It's in the 20s or so, isn't it? Yeah, probably. I don't really know. But he's a big-time yeah. farmer, too. It's 10,000 oh, yeah. acres or so, right? Yes, yes. Uh, of course, his uncle had a, a normal-sized farm for that part of the country. It wasn't anything close to that. But what really got him in the farming business, the Mormon church bought the largest track of land, there were three eccentric brothers, the body brothers, that died out, didn't have any family or anything like that, and they they uh, auctioned that farm off, and I can't remember the number of acres in it, but it was enormous, and it was right down the road from where Wayne lived, mm-hmm. and uh, so the Mormon church bought it, and I never thought about it, and they said no, said they, they believe in being sustainable, you know, they might have to grow food on it for their people sometime. Sure. And Wayne, Wayne got in with them, and he leased that farm from them. And it was three thousand acres, I believe, something like that. I don't want to, I don't want to uh, make it sound bigger, but it was a, it was the largest tract of land that that you could row crop farm in that part of the world. Mm-hmm. And of course, when he got that lease, he came over and sat down with me in my in my store in Russellville, and he said. I need a this and this and a this and this. And he, I said, he said, how would you do it? And I said, we'll put it on a three-year lease. John Deere was leasing at that time. Mm-hmm. And I said, at the end of it, you want to buy it and go on. If you don't want to, if you don't release it, your farm, you just leave it there and they'll come pick it up. And uh, we sold him quite a bit of stuff that way. And he didn't let any of it go back, I don't think, because he, <laughs> he continued to farm that. And I think he probably he and some some partners probably own all that now. I don't. I'm not close enough to Wayne to keep up with it. But now, uh, he he gets a full day in every day. He don't he don't <laughs> he, he don't stop and and dilly dally around. He's always been that way. And, well, and you have couple. to admire him because because uh, he didn't inherit anything from his daddy. We'll come back to John Ship and Frank Lesseter in a moment. Before we do so, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Verdesian, for supporting today's podcast. At Verdesian Life Sciences, we believe that supplying healthy water and soil for the next generation is just as important as supplying efficient nutrients for every crop farmers grow. For us, sustainability and profitability go hand in hand. 
That's why we call ourselves the Nutrient Use Efficiency People. We have dedicated ourselves to improving prescriptive nutrient use efficiency solutions that improve plant uptake and reduce fertilizer losses, helping preserve the environment and make the most of your investment. Learn more at VLSCI.com or talk to your ag retailer today about Verdesian products. Before we get back to the conversation, here's Frank Lesseter with a little-known no-till farmer fact. Since we've been looking back at the no-till history with John during this podcast, I thought we'd go back to the first National No-Tillage Conference, which was held in Indianapolis, Indiana in 1993. And we had 814 attendees and 45 speakers at that event over three days. At that time, there were about 32 million acres of no-till reported in the United States, which was a 60% increase from 1991. Today, that number stands at about 110 million acres. So we've really made progress over the past uh, 50 years or so. Now back to John and Frank. A couple of minutes ago, you, you mentioned that used equipment is a thorn in the side of dealers. And right now, used equipment prices are high. A lot of farmers can't get new equipment. They'd like to trade mm-hmm. their planters or something. Mm-hmm. Our son, Michael, told me you got you got into it with John Deere about uh, financing used equipment, right? Well, not exactly. They would finance used equipment. They were very conservative. But what we did that they did not like Okay. I could see, I can't remember the year, it was sometime in the 80s, We I could see the used equipment back up existing because it was existing on our in our location. So I called, I sat down with Norman Cash and I told him, I said, I want to have a an auction, a dealership auction, which was nothing new. Hmm. But I said, I'm going to offer John Deere credit. And he didn't say anything. <laughs> and I didn't ask John Deere. And uh, so... Uh, time came to print the, the uh, advertising of that they end up with a flyer some dealer up there took a flyer into columbus and said how how can they do that how can they do that mm-hmm. well they just ran all over themselves they sent their credit manager down uh, and said you can't do this and i said we'll, we'll, we'll stop there just why can't i do this and he didn't have a reason and we had, we set up two offices and two people taking credit applications and of course, nobody took anything home that day. We delivered it for them and everything like that. Got their credit approved. It was just, it was just a way to get customers together and bid against each other mm-hmm. in, a, in, a, in a slow market for uh, for used equipment. But they just, you know, they were going to stop us. There again, I think if it hadn't been for James R. That was that was another uh, auction that put James R. on the on the map. It was a tremendous auction. We had a lot of combines and. Uh, customers brought stuff in and everything. It was it was almost a two day auction auction that lasted eighteen hours. And, wow. And uh, yeah, and and I, I there was no hanky panky or anything like that. But like I say, John Deere needs to want. They always want to tell you what you can, what you can't do. And, and so I, 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 there's a lot of dealer auctions out there now, and there has been since then. And I don't know whether they offer financing or not. Nobody ever called me up and asked me how it worked. It just that was my idea that to get uh, bidders together and they didn't have to write a check that day. Yeah. And, and so basically deer was saying they only wanted to finance new equipment. No, no, they, they would finance. Uh, we had some kind of a book. I forgot what they called it. They, they'd finance 50, 60% of that depending on the customer. I, 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 you know, nothing was delivered that day. Nobody loaded their stuff up and 
hauled it away and never made any payments or anything like that. They, they just, you know, I told them I was going to do it, and they told me I couldn't, and I went on and did it. That, 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 <laughs> that, that's, what, that's what bothered them. And, and we did sales like that afterwards, too. Yeah. But, uh, Anyhow, I could I could see the buildup of used equipment, and and I've seen the time that used equipment was hot to sell, like mm-hmm. it is right now. Almost every, you can't hardly make a mistake right now. <laughs> right. Well, the thing is, today used equipment is so high priced that some people say, "Well, I might as well buy something new." But the only problem with that is you can't get the new. That's right. That's right. That we we were in that situation when I went into John Deere business in the early seventies, and. Uh, Another ironic thing, there's a, a Kubota dealer today in Crossville, Tennessee, and uh, I used to buy new 4430s and 40, 4230s and so forth from him, and uh, when it got tight with Kubota, we would buy Kubotas from him, and the Kubota dealership, <laughs> because the father is gone and the son still got the dealership, and it's 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 a Kubota dealership, but he used to be... Used to have a John Deere dealership there. Ralph Paget was his name. He's been so, dead quite a while. Another one you were a thorn in. Michael told me you were a thorn in the side with with uh, Deere was. Uh, you were looking at burning soybean oil and diesel engines. Tell me about that. Well, we had a lot of good customers, a lot of good friends, and everything like that. <clears throat> and one day, I guess it would have been '79 or '80. I I sent your son. Uh, a page out of Progressive Farmer, which I think was your magazine at that time. John, no, uh, I got it right. I got it right in front of me. That's okay, okay. But, 19, but anyhow, April, April nineteen eighty. Hey, I think that's right. But uh, but but anyhow, these two customers. One of them, they were both farmers, but they didn't farm at heart. One of them was an aeronautical engineer that had retired and farmed, and the other one. Well, his specialty was selling grain, you know, get, uh, and, and they, they were not what you'd call dirt farmers. And they came to my store one day and sat down in my office and they said, we think we should be burning soybean oil in a diesel engine. And when I got up out of the floor to laugh at them, uh, <laughs> they said, no, it'll work. And uh, so we went to lunch that day. I still was skeptical. And on the way back, we stopped at a little minute mart and I got a, a jar of blessing oil. Sure. And our, our shop had uh, steel tops on the benches. I wadded up some paper, wetted it with the Wesson oil, lit it, and it burned just like diesel fuel. We went from that to that fall at the National Soybean Convention in New Orleans. We hauled a John Deere 2440 down there and ran it on soybean oil in front of the hotel. I, I don't know sure. anybody did a story on that. But uh, I was very skeptical, and I didn't want any, you know, didn't want to promote anything that was going to damage the tractors. And we we ran into a few problems. Of course, it it is its viscosity is heavier than diesel, and the, the thing that really kind of slowed us down it its gel point is a lot higher than diesel. Of course, number two diesel is highest BTU per pound rating of any portable fuel that we have. Mm-hmm. That's what everybody. That's why everybody uses diesel. Number two, but number two will gel before number one. Number one's considered uh, kerosene. Okay. Or, right. And and uh, so it, I, we we encountered that. But somewhere along the line, we got enough publicity that the, the Northern Re- Regional Res- Research Center in Peoria, Illinois, invited us to come there 
and present our alternate fuel to, you know, tell people about it. And it was sure. several people there that had different, some of them were, had different things, but that was our thing to do. Got to know the guy in charge of it. And I asked him about the gel point. And uh, he said, well, you need to mix ethanol with it. I said, hell, it won't mix. Well, about two months later, he sent me a, a jug that had a, a an emulsion process, he called it. Sure. And he made he made the uh, ethanol and the soybean oil mix. And that's basically what biodiesel is today. And the other thing that comes around is when you add ethanol to it, it burns cleaner than when it's not in there. Mm-hmm. It's it's a it's an an enhancer they call it. But okay. Anyhow, we started that, and we we didn't have any idea what we were doing, but we had nerve enough to run right out there and do it. And which you, it shows that in your in that piece of paper that I sent your son that. I, I'm sure one of your guys came there and did a story on that, but all the TV stations around it, you know, it really made the news, and most all the farm magazines came sure. and did stories on it. I, for some reason or other, I kept that progressive farmer there about that. But I don't think John Deere ever came right out and said you shouldn't be doing that. I think mm-hmm. they were foresighted enough to knew something was going to have to change sometime, and they were kind of glad to be in on it a little bit. Yeah. But they didn't they didn't send somebody down and said, You we better quit doing that, you all your kids will be born naked or something like that, you know how they how they <laughs> are. And uh I don't think they were negative about it. I think they were they were scared of me again for doing something like that, but it took a long time but it's worked out to be pretty good. So have you got people in your or in area running biodiesel? Not a lot and I uh, honestly I can't I can't tell you. Uh, the ratios or anything like that, uh, and I don't know the cost. It used to be, of course, vegetable oil was quite a bit higher than number two diesel and didn't produce quite as many BTUs per pound. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't. It wasn't. But but I think the day will come that it'd be hard to buy diesel without an additive in it, like uh, uh, soybean oil or the uh, you know the ethanol. You, you knew they had that big ethanol plant in Hopkinsville, didn't you? Sure, right. Yeah, we were talking about Wayne. He uh, he was he was really in to get that done. He, I know we talked about it a lot, and I'm not sure it would it would be there if it if it wasn't for him to push to get that done. It's been it's meant a lot to that community and jobs, and of course, put ethanol right out up right out in the front. And every time he'd run into a stump, he'd call me. And we'd talk about it, and and he called me one day, and he said, "We we've got a lot of service stations that want to put ethanol in, but the oil companies won't let them." And I said, "What do you mean won't let them? They won't, won't you let it put?" It? He said, "No." He said, "They they own the the tanks and the fuel that's in it, and they're not, they're not let, let us put ethanol." In them. And and uh, I I think they finally got past that, but but. Uh, but he he was he was he was very instrumental about getting that done and pushing it through. Well, going back to these soil oil tests, you did quite a bit on this. I mean, you uh, you had the, I think you had a John Deere forty six thirty. This article said you uh, put it on a dynamometer and it did pretty well, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. Of course, we had a. That's another thing John Deere didn't like about me. If a fellow needed more horsepower, we knew how to give it to him. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, that's very easy on that on those Bosch pumps. 
a little harder on the Rusemasters on the older tractors, but I learned to do that. Nobody taught me to do that. I, I just couldn't. We were selling 4020s out of the store at John Deere in, uh, in E-Town and a power shift. Everybody wanted a power shift. And about half of them wouldn't pull themselves in eighth gear. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I I went back out to the store one Sunday afternoon and I had a brand new 4020 and I took that pump off and, and uh, very carefully took that thing apart, figured out how it worked, where how, where you adjusted it, because John Deere wouldn't send you a manual if you didn't have a test stand, and uh, figured that out. And we had people come from everywhere. They said, "We they tell me you can make a 4020 smoke." <laughs> <laughs> and and of course the 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 inline Bosch pumps were a lot easier. You just take a cap off the back, and it was a set screw in there you could change and and uh, to do that. But but that was another thing that they didn't like me doing. And I don't know of any of them that ever ruined an engine. That probably shortened the life of it some. But it got what the customer wanted, and we could keep up with those other guys and the internationals. We had a hard time keeping them up with the 1206s and the 1456s and things like that with what John Deere had. Mm-hmm. John Deere's were nice tractors, had great cabs. International forgot to put a good cab on those tractors when they were building, but they had a hell of an engine. But it, it, it let us keep up with them uh, to be able to change the fuel delivery on those tractors. And what's next? Why didn't the soy oil catch on? Nobody picked it up. See, everything had to go through the oil distributors. Just like in our town there in Russellville, there was an oil distributor had a service station out front. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, uh, sooner or later, and I don't, I didn't keep up with that, that much after I kind of got out of the, the big farm business and just was fooling with Kubota's, uh, sooner or later, I think there was pressure from, from the groups that wanted to clean the air up. And it's, of course, sure. it's, it's, it's coming home to all of us about that. And I think, I think they were forced to do that. Uh, the engine manufacturers and manufacturers and co- countries and companies and I think they were forced to start adding, put additives in there, and it was a natural to do that. And I think, like I say, the soy diesel uh, is is uh, got some ethanol in it, which makes it burn cleaner, and it's a little thinner, doesn't gel as quick, and all those things like that. But well, looking at this Progressive Farmer article from 1980, they've got some figures in here. A gallon of diesel is a dollar per gallon, and soy oil is a dollar sixty. So that's changed a little since then. Mm-hmm. I think we've got mm-hmm. diesel fuel that's five or six dollars a gallon now. So I, yeah, yeah, farmers are looking for ways to cut their fuel costs. We, uh, I just did an article in our newsletter, and the average acreage of our readers is thirteen hundred acres, and if you were no tilling versus conventional tilling. A conventional tilling neighbor would be caught, would be spending thirty two thousand dollars more per year on diesel fuel than the no tiller. So, a heck of a difference. It is. It is. The cost of the diesel fuel, the soybean oil, the steak you buy at the grocery, the tires you put on your car. Uh, my theory is we've the, the monopolies have taken over our country. Mm-hmm. And I and I go back to what Wayne Hunt said about the uh, when they were trying to get ethanol in those uh, service stations. Sure. Uh, uh, they owned the tanks and they owned the, the fuel that's in it. And yeah. They're not going to let you do other things like that. Yeah. But uh, 
they they blame everybody. The, the public blames everybody. What would mean here, whether he's a Republican or a Democrat in there for high fuel costs and high, high this and high that. But we won't get that straightened out until we start breaking up the monopolies. All right. If you don't, if, you, if, you, if you're in a business, no matter if we've got one store or 25, if you don't have any competition, you can charge whatever you want to. All right. And that's 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 an exaggeration of what's going on, but but it's sure. gotten worse in the last five, six, eight years or something like that. So we've been talking about 50 minutes. You got any more thoughts on no-till that I ought to be talking to you about? Not that I think of. Okay. Uh, I forget things. I forget things pretty easy. Oh, so do I. Uh, <laughs> I've got a I've got a brother that's ten years older than I am. Still lives. He's in his nineties, and he was a proctologist. He was a surgeon that did a tremendous amount of surgery in Lowell, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And he had to, he had to quit. I think he'd still be doing it, but he <laughs> he has he has memory loss. Yeah, and I, I I'm just ten years behind him. I can remember a lot of this stuff that handled happened years ago, but I, I can see my mind fading. And I know right. there's a lot of stuff up there that I can't get out right now, and never will be. <laughs> right. You know, one but of the I, one of the things that happened when I would come down when I first went down the Christian County and around Hopkinsville that on double cropping there were there were a lot of people that were. Um, double cropping barley with soybeans because the barley could be harvested earlier and get a longer growing season for the soybeans. But barley kind of went by the wayside down there, didn't it? Was it too cheap to sell or what? Well, there's two two sides to that story. The the seed barley was cheaper than the seed wheat. Okay. So it it didn't even out. Mm-hmm. But the market for barley is just nothing. Yeah. And back then, of course, they, you know, if you had a thousand acres, you had a tremendous amount. And most of those guys that are, were farming that track of land is, are, are got five times that much. And they look more at those costs like that. Mm-hmm. But it does let you get it in, the, get get the next crop in earlier. Yeah. And uh, it, it comes off a little earlier and it costs a little less to grow. But, right. Uh, it's it's not as it's not as good on the selling end of it, and I don't know what they do with barley. I guess it it goes into an animal feed of some kind. Yeah, and I'm, there's some microbreweries. There's it's got a decent yeah. market for barley, but it's not huge. No, that's a bottle at a time kind of. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, right. but uh, but uh, but they 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 were they were planting more bar- people people from other parts of the country. Well, why in the world are you doing barley? You know. Yeah. And we were a little bit unique on that, and and I would assume you you you're correct, and they've gone back to wheat because yeah. uh, the other cost didn't get any better, the machinery cost and the labor cost and all like that. So yeah. dealing with a higher priced product maybe gives them a little more profit that way because the fixed costs are the same. What years did you get out of your John Deere dealership? At the end of the eighties. And uh, yeah, we we went round and around and around with them. They made us sign a binding arbitration agreement back then, which meant the contract that they gave us was not worth the paper it was written on. Mm-hmm. And when we'd get into a, a squabble with them, they were always out. You know, they they knew what they were going to do because they got to where we couldn't get along at all. And uh, they came in one day and shut us down. We we were the first Kinsey dealer out of the Corn Belt, uh-huh. and we had a customer that uh, was bigger than life, and he was the he had the first 
repowered tractor that Kenzie made that he put a 318 Detroit engine in it. He bought a okay. 4520 and had a, had a 318 Detroit engine put in it at, at, at Kenzie's place. He, Kenzie was already fooling around with smaller engine swaps. Right. And we, so he insisted that we go on and be a Kenzie dealer. And we got to be we got to be selling a lot of Kenzie stuff. Uh, we sure did. And uh, uh, he 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 was really he was really good to us and the sharpest guy that you'll ever find to talk to. You probably talked to him. Oh yeah, and, right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I had some stories I was going to tell you about that, but you may be our time may be running out. But, yeah, I think it is. But the funniest, I'll tell you the funniest one. Well, John Deere didn't like it, and Norman Cash came in one day, and uh, I had to lay it on my de- desk. Uh, Kenzie had sent me a flyer on his double bar planter, mm-hmm. and uh, and I just laid it down and didn't even look at it. Norman came in and he he walked by and he picked that up and he said, "What are you doing with this right here?" You know, I said, "Well, right. Kenzie, did, I didn't even know what he was talking about." I said, "Kenzie sent that to me." Well, about eight o'clock at night, Norman called me. He said. Can you get one of those double bar planters? And I said, I think I can. I said, I think I can call, call John and he'll build you one how you want it. They have a farming operation, the, the, the Cash family does, mm-hmm. in the fancy, fancy farm area. And he said, that's just what my brother's been looking for. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, of course, by that time, John Deere and Kenzie had gone through the not use the green paint law, lawyer yeah. anymore. And, and so I called Norman. I said, this is how much it is. And I said, I ain't got time to go after it. I said, y'all got trucks. You, you can go up to Kenji and load your, load your planter on that truck. And so, so they went up there and picked it up. And they paid Kenji and brought it back to Fancy Farm. And, of course, they unloaded it and set it up. And they looked at it. We don't want that damn blue planter here in this yonder. <laughs> so they tore it back down and painted it green. Uh-huh. With green paint. and. Kenzie called me one day and he said, what in the hell are you doing down there? And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I had never seen the planter, never have seen it yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there was a big stink raised up over that. <laughs> and, uh, but that family, you know, it was all John Deere and they didn't want to go out there and sure. with, a, with a planter painted blue. <laughs> right. That was Frank Lesner and John Shipp talking about Kentucky no-till and early struggles with John Deere. Before we wrap up today's episode, here's Frank Lesner one more time. Someone asked me recently when it was the first time that we talked about strip tillage in our no-till farmer publication. Well, I'm not sure, but it was sometime in the later 80s or early 90s, but I do know at the very first National No-Tillage Conference in 1993, We had a presentation by Cliff Roberts of Kentland, Indiana, and he'd already been stripped to him for a half dozen years. And he indicated that he had done it all wrong the first three years, but he was on to a better system then. He was building strips in the fall and leaving a mound of soil in the roll area that remains five to seven degrees warmer than the surrounding soil. So we've come a long ways in the past 30 years with strip till. That's it for this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. Thanks to our sponsor, Verdesian, for helping to make this series possible. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com slash podcasts. That's no, 
tillfarmer.com slash podcasts. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at B-O-C-O-N-N-O-R at lessitermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2413. And don't forget, Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to this podcast to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts. For Frank and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Brian O'Connor. Thanks for listening and farm ugly.